Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Maui officials defend not sounding the warning sirens before the deadly wildfire. And the stock value of the island's largest utility is hitting a record low as it faces multiple lawsuits. A Georgia state senator attempting to start an investigation and possible impeachment of DA Fonnie Willis. This as a reaction to the indictments of Trump and 18 of his allies. Trump co-defendant Mark Meadows hopes to have his Georgia charges moved from Fulton County to a federal court. He may ultimately try to dismiss the case. We'll explain how that would work. Now wielding subpoena power, House Republicans today pressing the Biden administration for more documents related to its alleged collusion with big tech companies. That's as a top White House lawyer steps down. NewsGuard grades the media, but who grades NewsGuard? The Epic Times releases an ex exclusive investigation that tells us more. And documents posted online reveal Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' possible strategy for the upcoming GOP primary debate. Included in the memo are suggestions for addressing former President Trump and President Biden. Chief of Maui's Emergency Management Agency today defended his decision not to sound the island's warning sirens. The statement comes as members of the public question whether doing so might have saved lives. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. And that's the reason why many of them are found, almost all of them are found, on the coastline. But according to the state government's website, the sirens can be used in different situations, and that includes wildfires. Residents are also demanding answers from the island's largest utility, Hawaiian Electric Industries. The company is facing at least four lawsuits since its power lines could potentially be one source of the deadly blaze. Lawyers are questioning the company's operation and equipment maintenance. And many suggested that the fires could have been prevented if the power had been shut off on time. Stock in Hawaiian Electric is continuing its slump, briefly hitting its lowest level since 1985 in early trading today. Stock traders fear that the utility might not be able to bear the mounting liability claims, which could reach billions of dollars. As of now, the death toll in Hawaii's wildfires has hit 111. And that number is expected to rise since only 40% of the search area has been covered so far. A Georgia Republican state senator is trying to block the prosecution of former President Trump and his allies. NTD's Melina Weiskopf joins us from the Fulton County Jail where the sheriff says the defendants will be booked. Melina, what's the senator trying to do? So State Senator Colton Moore, who's a Republican, wants to call a special legislative session to investigate District Attorney Fonnie Willis after she indicted Trump and 18 others over being involved in what she calls a criminal enterprise meant to overturn the 2020 presidential election. We'll pull up on the screen here for you the petition that the state senator sent to the governor and the secretary of state saying that an emergency exists requiring a special session for review and response to the actions of Fonnie Willis. He also told our sister media outlet, the Epoch Times, in an exclusive statement, I am demanding that we defund her office until we find out what is going on. We cannot stand idly by as corrupt prosecutors choose to target their political opposition. 
Fani recently, uh, on Monday, charged uh, 19 defendants, including former President Trump, a total of 41 counts, 13 of them directed at former President Trump. And she accuses them of being involved in a criminal enterprise. She proposed an arraignment date for all of them to start on the week of September 5th. She also proposed a March 4th trial date, which is right when the GOP primary kicks off. And today, the sheriff's office warned of threats against the jury that indicted Trump and the others. Tell us more about that. Yeah, the Fulton County Sheriff's Office has said they are investigating threats against the jurors who voted to indict former President Trump on Monday, saying that they're engaged with local and federal law enforcement agencies to pin down where those threats are coming from here in Fulton County, as well as in other jurisdictions. Meanwhile, former state senator Jen Jordan says that this safety concern may make it difficult to pick the actual juror for that trial set for March 4th. These folks are going to be on screen every day. Everyone is going to know who they are. Their lives are going to be turned upside down. And so just to be able to sit a jury um, of people who would be even willing to put, you know, their lives on the line um, is going to be really, really difficult. As for former President Trump and those other defendants, they have until next Friday to come in here and surrender to this Fulton County Jail right here behind me. We're still waiting on confirmation as to whether or not Trump's team plans to have him come here next week. We're also waiting on confirmation as to whether or not uh, Trump's lawyers actually urged him not to hold that press conference on Monday where he plans to unveil his report of election fraud here in the state of Georgia. Thanks for that update, Melina. We'll be checking in with you again tomorrow. And could a Trump ally get his Georgia charges dismissed? Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is asking a federal judge to transfer his case from the Fulton County to a federal court. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards explains why. Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows wasted no time asking a federal judge to move the Georgia charges against him from state court to federal. In a 14-page notice to a federal district court, Meadows claims that because he was a federal official during the time of the alleged incidents, the case should be moved to a federal court. The notice states, the removal statute protects the federal government from the interference with its operations that would ensue were a state able, for example, to arrest and bring to trial in a state court for an alleged offense against the law of the state, officers and agents of the federal government acting within the scope of their authority. In other words, he says a state court can't prosecute a case against a federal official and that anyway, he was just doing his job. In fact, the notice states that none of the charges filed against him are really criminal. For example, it states that arranging Oval Office meetings, contacting state officials on the president's behalf, visiting a state government building, and setting up a phone call for the president. One would expect the chief of staff to the president of the United States to do these sorts of things. The judge laid out the law in a court order on Wednesday. The law provides federal officials with a federal forum in which to raise defenses arising from their official duties. Or federal officials should only be tried in federal courts in cases involving official acts conducted while in office. If the judge determines that the case should be moved to federal court, the next step is for him to decide whether or not the case should be dismissed. 
Meadows' attorney plans to file a motion to dismiss the case under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, also called the Federal Immunity Defense. He argues in the notice that the Supremacy Clause provides federal officials immunity from suit involving state charges in order to protect federal operations from the chilling effect of state prosecution. The judge hinted in his order that the case could likely be removed to federal court, but he didn't address whether or not the case could be dismissed. The parties will attend a hearing Monday, August 28, to argue their positions. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Demanding more documents, House Republicans today requested additional records for their investigations into big tech censorship and Hunter Biden. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Iris, what can you tell us? Good evening, Seth. So today, two separate GOP committees demanded additional documents for their ongoing probes into the Biden administration. The House Judiciary Committee today subpoenaed the FBI and the Justice Department for more detailed communications between the Biden administration and social media companies. It says evidence presented in the Missouri versus Biden case has shown that the Biden administration has, quote, colluded with big tech to censor certain viewpoints on social media. But the committee's chairman, Jim Jordan, in his letter wrote to the DOJ and FBI on Thursday, said that the previous requests for these agencies to turn over records voluntarily have been, quote, woefully inadequate. No so far responses have been so adequate. And for example, he says that the DOJ has only produced a single document that is a publicly available transcripts. And thus, he says there's the need for them to now use the subpoena power to demand more detailed communications. But the White House has been defending its past communications with social media companies and calling them responsible actions. Watch. We, we are going to continue to promote responsible actions to protect uh, public health, safety and uh, security when confronted by challenges like a deadly pandemic and foreign attacks on our elections. So we're going to continue uh, to be to, to do that in a to promote that in a responsible way. And in addition to that, the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer today asked the National Archives to turn over unredacted versions of emails involving then-Vice President Joe Biden, his son Hunter Biden, and Hunter's business dealings in Ukraine. In his letter on Thursday, Comer wrote that evidence has shown Biden had, quote, wide open access for his family's influence peddling. But President Biden, as we know, has repeatedly denied any involvement in his son's business dealings. And amid all this, the White House announced on Thursday that its top lawyer called Stuart Delury is stepping down. This White House counsel has advised President Biden on COVID response as well as GOP investigations. No replacement has been announced just yet. Steph. Thanks for that update, Iris. And next, defend former President Trump and attack President Biden. This is one possible strategy for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the first GOP primary debate next week, according to a newly released memo. Axiom Strategies posted on its website a trove of documents this week detailing suggestions for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' strategy for the GOP primary debates. Axiom Strategies is associated with DeSantis' super PAC, Never Back Down. The owner of Axiom Strategies, Jeff Rowe, also serves as the chief strategist for the Super PAC. According to one memo, there are four basic must-dos for DeSantis during the debate. One, attack Joe Biden and the media three to five times. Two, state DeSantis's positive vision two to three times. Three, hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response. 
And four, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. The document goes on to cite the orchestra pit theory, which recommends creating drama through memorable moments. This includes one, take a sledgehammer to Vivek Ramaswamy, fake Vivek or Vivek the fake, and two, defend Trump when Chris Christie attacks him. DeSantis is urged to say, quote, Trump isn't here, so let's just leave him alone. He's too weak to defend himself here. Other suggestions for potential memorable moments include showing emotion while invoking a personal antidote about DeSantis's family, wife, and kids. Trump is considered unlikely to take part in the first GOP primary debate next week. On Wednesday, the Never Back Down Super PAC released an ad attacking Trump. The ad calls Trump too weak to debate and says that Republicans need a nominee with stamina. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And tonight we take a deep dive into a company called NewsGuard, which says it grades media outlets based on trustworthiness. But who's grading the graders? NTD's Jason Perry looks into a recent investigation. NewsGuard is a company that says it counters misinformation and it claims to grade media outlets based on their trustworthiness. But are they grading fairly? I spoke with Peter Schwab, reporter for the Epic Times, who investigated NewsGuard and recently published a report on his findings. The more I looked into it, the, the more it looked like that uh, uh, there's a disconnect between how NewsGuard kind of presents itself, uh, the, the first impression they give you of themselves, and uh, how they actually operate uh, uh, when you kind of look at the at, at their operations as, as a whole. For some people, NewsGuard is just a simple tool, but Schwab has brought to light the company's ties to the advertising world. He explained how they can, in a way, defund certain news outlets, preventing them from making money through advertising. And uh, let's say uh, uh, a media outlet publishes uh, some articles, a series of reports on some topic that's controversial. And uh, NewsGuard would, uh, can then come in and give a rating to that uh, media outlet and say, well, uh, actually based on you know, our sources, based on the experts we consulted, uh, what you're saying is not quite accurate. And uh, uh, so your publication is untrustworthy and your publication thus is unsafe for advertisers. And he gave examples of topics in which NewsGuard may give a news outlet a bad rating if its reporting doesn't match a particular it's narrative. Of, it's kind of no surprise what the, what the topics are. Uh, uh, things like climate change, things like COVID lockdowns, uh, things like uh, the any kind of remedy to COVID, uh, any kind of uh, uh, thing, you, you know, people may want to try to use uh, to, to get over COVID. Uh, that's not directly recommended by the World uh, Health Organization or by, by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. The pharmaceutical industry's influence on media outlets was also cited by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. during a recent interview on London Real TV. Ron, but is there any media institutions that you do respect or admire journalistically? Well, I, I would say the ones now that are, you know, free of pharmaceutical, there's very few. And Which are they? Well, I would say Epic Times is one. 
The Epic Times emailed NewsGuard asking questions about its products, activities, personnel, and funding, but received no response. NCD also reached out to NewsGuard for comment on this investigation, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NCD News. And you can check out the details of the full investigation at theepictimes.com. Coming up. Canadians are evacuating as hundreds of wildfires rage across the country. A woman says her car started melting as she drove away. New laws for transgender youth in North Carolina taking effect. No cross-sex procedures, additional parental involvement, and more. A California school board approves the rainbow pride flag at LGBT events for the school district. We hear from the community. And millions of kids with ADHD can't get their medications amid a nationwide shortage. Are drugs the only solution? We find out after the break. Right now, mass evacuations have been ordered in the Northwest Territories of Canada, where hundreds of wildfires are scorching through earth, homes and businesses, and that's just in that region. More than 1,000 are burning across the entire country. This as a rapidly intensifying hurricane threatens the West Coast. Patrick Cornell has the latest. Massive walls of raging flames surrounding nearly every side of a family fleeing wildfires in Hay River, Canada. A woman in the car says the inferno was so intense the vehicle started melting during the drive. It's just smoke. It's just smoke. A woman engulfed by smoke evacuating Yellowknife calls it a terrifying experience. The premier of the Northwest Canadian Territories is urging people to obey evacuation orders, saying in a statement, we're all tired of the word unprecedented, yet there is no other way to describe this situation. Toxic smoke once again triggering unhealthy air quality in the northern United States. This is a rapidly evolving situation. Our hearts and thoughts are with every community in the Northwest Territories who's been impacted, every person who's having to leave their home, and all the firefighters and emergency responders who are on the ground helping to keep people safe. This, as Hillary rapidly intensifies in the Pacific, it's forecast to reach Category 4 hurricane strength by Saturday as it approaches the Baja California Peninsula. I'm Patrick Cornell reporting. No more access to cross-sex procedures for minors in North Carolina. The state's legislature this week overriding various vetoes issued by the governor. Multiple bills affecting transgender youth are now in effect. The House has overridden the governor's veto and the bill is sent to the Senate by special message. North Carolina's legislature overrode various vetoes on Wednesday. House Republicans in the state became the supermajority earlier this year after a Democrat switched parties. This gives the GOP in the state the power to easily override the governor's vetoes. Lawmakers had previously passed multiple bills affecting transgender minors in the state. The governor then vetoed them without success. One of the bills prohibits doctors from administering cross-sex procedures on minors. This includes puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and surgical interventions. An exemption are minors who started such procedures before August 1st. The bill is taking effect immediately. The state has an interest in protecting our children from long-term harm. That's what this bill is all about. 
Another one of the bills, called the Parents' Bill of Rights, affects students' pronouns. It requires schools to notify parents before making changes to a kid's preferred pronouns. And the third one requires minors to play on sports teams that align with their original gender. NTD's Capitol Report spoke with State Senator Ted Alexander about this last bill. Men cannot play on the girls' teams, and that's what this bill is all about, uh, primarily because uh, uh, the men are built differently, they're, they're stronger, they're, they have uh, more mass in their weight. A Democratic state senator disagrees with the Republican supermajority, saying the veto overrides are just another example of fighting culture wars instead of fighting for our school children. The legislature on Wednesday also overturned vetoes regarding energy, home building, and more. And controversy over pride celebrations at California schools. We take the pulse of a community after one school board approves LGBT events. NTD's David Lamb reports. Over 21 resolutions were passed by the San Ramon Valley Unified School Board. These include ones that would mandate displaying a pride flag during the month of June and recognizing National Day of Silence, meant to bring awareness to anti-LGBT bullying. And every one of these resolutions that highlights a specific ethnic group is about lifting that group up. The pride flag is not ex an explicitly political symbol. It displays support for the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion so that all students can thrive. Some were in favor of the board's efforts toward diversity. As educators, we are obligated to ensure our schools are safe for all of our students. We are obligated to provide inclusive instructional material. I hope that this district stays an inclusive campus with all LGBTQ stuff still on library walls and that Pride Month and Day of Silence can still be celebrated. The students in our district that I have talked to have actually asked for more attention to be brought to these resolutions and for the district to create more avenues for students to highlight and share their diversity during these recognition periods. Others felt the measures were an overreach by the district and government, questioning the district's roles and parents' rights to educate their children. In the still extant Peers versus Society of Sisters SCOTUS decision of 1925, that one proclaims the child of man is his parent's child and not the state's. And the parental right to guide one's child intellectually and religiously is a most substantial part of the liberty and freedom of the parent. Four and five-year-old children, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-olds, do not inherently know what bisexual, transsexual, lesbian, gay means. Some cited segregation and overemphasis of the LGBT group. Was at Charlottewood Middle School, children that wanted to participate in Day of Silence were given a necklace. If you did not participate, you did not get a necklace. We are supposed to be bringing our community together. We want everybody to feel safe, but by creating a division with segregating students, whether you support with a necklace or not, that is not bringing our students together. The board superintendent says for the resolutions, they hope to speak to local principals and provide guidance. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And millions of children aren't getting their ADHD medication due to a nationwide shortage. Many are now struggling to concentrate in class. Are there alternative treatments that don't involve drugs? Let's find out.
Millions of children diagnosed with ADHD can't get their medications. ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, a recognized medical condition that involves being unable to concentrate, stay still, and or control impulses, not helpful in a classroom environment. Medications like Adderall can effectively solve this problem for some time, but the drug is hard to find because of a nationwide shortage. I have had the experience of having to um, have my doctor switch my medication to a different pharmacy. I go to that pharmacy to pick it up, and it turns out they actually ran out since the prescription uh, was sent there. So the runaround is real. The struggle is real. Psychologist Julie Landry and her two boys all have ADHD. She's heard stories from patients, friends, and colleagues who spend hours looking for drugs. They're spending hours calling pharmacies, driving across town in order to go to a pharmacy that does have the medication that they're looking for. Lots of people are changing medications, trying different um, uh, stimulant medications, maybe trying brand name when they had previously used generic, which means that they're paying more out of pocket. Parents sometimes have to ask doctors to rewrite prescriptions. The New York Times says this is like having a second job, with tasks like scheduling appointments, medical history reviews, and documentation. We can tell when, when certain areas where people are able to get more Adderall. I can't say that uh, we're there yet. Brandon Newman is the CEO of a healthcare tech company that analyzes billions of prescription claims. He doesn't see the shortage easing right now, but he is optimistic. He says the healthcare market may meet the demand eventually. He also believes there's too much of a medication culture in America. When you're presented with either changing your diet, exercising, and controlling your thoughts and your mental health versus get a medication, pop it, it's resolved. I've, I've sort of checked it off the list. Most Americans are going to the latter. Medical experts say alternatives include lifestyle choices, how much sleep you get, what you're eating, how much you're exercising, and how much you're meditating. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, the average retired couple could see their Social Security benefits reduced by over $17,000 in 2033 as funding for the program diminishes over the coming decade, according to a recent analysis. Anti-Western trade bloc BRICS considers a gold-backed currency to challenge the dollar. An economist weighs in. And Russia launches its first lunar mission in almost half a century. That's in a bid to get a head start in the new race to the moon. That and more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The death toll in Hawaii's wildfires is now over 110. Authorities say 38% of the search area has been covered. At least four lawsuits have been filed against the state's top electric company. They allege the fires started from fallen power lines blown down by intense winds. The House Judiciary requests documents from the Justice Department and the FBI over alleged government collusion with big tech to censor speech. The House Oversight Committee, meanwhile, requests President Biden's emails involving Ukraine. A GOP state senator in Georgia is calling for a special session to investigate Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. This is while the Fulton County Sheriff and the FBI look into threats made against members of the grand jury that indicted former President Trump. 
And a memo posted by a super PAC supporting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis reveals a recommended debate strategy. That includes attacking President Biden and defending former President Trump during the GOP primary debate. Retired couples could see their Social Security benefits shrink in a decade. That's according to a new report from the Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. This figure translates into over $17,000 cut in retiree benefits. Here to discuss is NTD Business's Don Ma. Don, welcome. Significant cuts to Social Security in just 10 years. What are we looking at here? How bad will it be? Well, first of all, thanks for having me here, Steph. Um, the Social Security program is funded by the Old Age and Survivors Insurance Trust Fund. So, and this trust fund is projected to deplete its reserves by 2033. Now, this is according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Um, so what that means is that 70 million retirees, dependents, survivors, regardless of age, income, or need, will see their benefits be cut by nearly a quarter. So how did we even get to this point, Don? Okay, so some history. When President Roosevelt first enacted Social Security in 1935, um, the intention was to serve as a safety net for, for the elderly, and that's fine. But at that time, life expect expectancy was roughly 60 years old. Um, so expectations were that participants wouldn't be drawing on Social Security for, for very long, uh, relatively speaking. Additional amendments got added to Social Security. It was expanded. The participation got wider in the program. This is putting more stress on the program. And then politicians added more beneficiaries from the dis disabled immigrants, farmers, railroad workers, firefighters. You know, the list goes on. So while politicians and voters continue to add more beneficiaries um, to the welfare program, the number of workers actually steadily declined. So you had more people taking from the program and then people contributing became less and less. And I think on that trajectory, here we are. Now, most politicians say they don't want to touch Social Security benefits at all. But considering the coming changes, it seems that something has to be done to replenish the funds. What are some of the most likely measures that are being proposed? Yeah, so various measures have been proposed uh, throughout the years to keep Social Security healthy. Uh, that's including raising the age of eligibility, um, increasing taxes, relying on more revenue, general revenue to fill in any gap in funding. But you know, I think the core of the problem is, is not actually that simple. For example, like tweaking something here and tweaking something there. Um, I don't think it's that easy to fix because part of the problem is a demographic issue. And what I mean by that is you don't have enough people paying into it. Uh, you, the workforce is shrinking and people are taking out of the program more. So the problem here is the American population is aging. So I think what we need to do is promote demographic growth, um, promote workforce growth. All right, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Always good to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. The IRS employee count is reaching decade high levels. Hiring at the tax agency has risen by more than 13% over the past year. Here's the story. 
IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel says the IRS is close to reaching 90,000 full-time employees. That's according to the Federal News Network. The IRS's 2022 data book shows the agency had 79,000 full-time positions in 2022. This means hiring at the IRS has risen by more than 13% over the past year. The last time the IRS employed more than 90,000 people was 2012. Staffing dipped below 80,000 in 2015 and remained below that level until now. The jump in hiring comes as the tax agency was granted $80 billion under the Inflation Reduction Act last year. Werfel told reporters that the agency is utilizing the funds to make an immediate, meaningful difference to deliver the service taxpayers and the nation deserve. He also pushed back against claims that the IRS intended to boost the number of its armed agents. Republicans have criticized the funding boost, worried that it could lead to an enforcement expansion. The IRS said earlier this year it intends to hire 87,000 new employees over a 10-year period. And looking abroad, an emerging trade bloc including Brazil, Russia, India and China and South Africa, commonly known as BRICS, has created international rumblings over a possible announcement of a gold-backed currency at its annual summit later this month. How could that affect the U.S.? And what should we do about it? I spoke with an economist, Pete Earle, at the American Institute for Economic Research for his thoughts. Pete, great to have you joining us. BRICS nations are discussing a plan to abandon the U.S. dollar and create a common currency. How likely is that, do you think? Well, the idea that the dollar is going to be replaced either imminently or inevitably is pretty unrealistic. Um, most of the existing currencies are, are not viable for several reasons, um, whether that's because, like the Chinese renminbi, there's a closed capital account. Some of them are pegged. Uh, many of the nations don't really have a lot of respect for private property rights. But um, a commodity-backed currency or a properly designed cryptocurrency are probably the most realistic option for competing with the U.S. dollar. So what do you think of this suggestion of gold for BRICS? I, I think that's the most likely way uh, that a uh, that a competitor to the dollar uh, would be would be would, would come about. Um, it's I mean it's it would be complicated to implement, but that's the most likely uh, uh, way that something like this could happen. And there's concern that a BRICS currency would lower the value of the U.S. dollar. Would you agree with that? And how would that work? Yeah, so any 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 uh, replacement currency that's tied to a commodity value like gold or silver um, would probably be less inflation prone. And uh, if it's not tied to a payment system like the dollar is to SWIFT, um, it's likely that many nations would use it and they would thus be free of, uh, you know, the, uh, the mistakes of the Federal Reserve and uh, the possibility of American interventionism. That would probably demand uh, demand that would probably lower demand for the dollar internationally, and in turn there would be less demand for treasuries. So it's a pretty it would be a serious uh, state of affairs if it came about. And though it doesn't seem too likely, some analysts are saying that the United States shouldn't shrug off entirely the notion of competition. So what, if anything, should the U.S. do? Do you think to remain the currency peg of choice? Yeah, I mean the the, the first and most important thing to do would be to make the dollar more sound. Um, in the short term, that would be to uh, to make the Federal Reserve subject to a single mandate rather than the many it's inherited over the years, some of which contradict others. Uh, another would be over the medium to long term, as complicated as it is to tie the dollar to a commodity standard itself, whether that's gold, silver or some other uh, commodity. That would be the best way to do it. All right. Thank you so much. Pete Earle, economist at the American Institute for Economic Research. Great to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The race to space is heating up. 
China and Russia are stepping up efforts to overtake the U.S. Moscow last week launched its first lunar mission in almost 50 years, looking to make a historic discovery. What's driving the new race to the moon? Major powers like the U.S., China, Japan and the EU have all been probing the moon over recent years. A Japanese lunar landing failed last year and an Israeli mission failed in 2019. There's been a focus on the South Pole, where no country has been able to reach yet. Rough terrain makes landing difficult, but the prize could be historic. Ice that could be used to extract fuel, oxygen, and drinking water. Russia and India are racing to get there first. Yeah, Russia's aspirations towards the moon are mixed up in a lot of different things. There's always been speculation that there's water on the moon. And that's important if you if you want to build permanent settlements on the moon. So I think what Russia is trying to do is really spearhead that investigation and like be at the forefront of it. So this the fact that they're exploring the South Pole isn't an accident. Astronomers have wondered about water on the moon for centuries, which is 100 times drier than the Sahara Desert. It was only in 2020 that NASA confirmed the existence of water there. India sent up its Chandrayaan-3 lunar lander last month after the Chandrayaan-2 failed in 2019. But Russia may also have political ambitions behind its space missions, especially as it faces sanctions from the West over the war in Ukraine. First and foremost, it's an expression of national uh, power on the global stage. Russia wants to go to the moon, partly to assert its national place on the with the big big guys, so to speak. China has already announced plans to return humans to the moon. The U.S. has a major prog program called Artemis that it is uh, in, in the middle of. So there's a lot of act activity going on. Uh, Russia, because it lacks the economic power of the United States, has allied with China. So it's possible that what the Chinese do, the Russians may actually piggyback on top of that um, in the next 10, 15 years. Coming up, troubles for small town police departments continue. We have the analysis after an entire police force in a small Minnesota city quits at the same time. And in the NFL, will the heartwarming story continue? The Buffalo Bills give an update on the playing status of DeMar Hamlet when we come back. Small-town police departments across the U.S. are facing peril. The dilemma shows starkly in the small Minnesota town of Goodhue, where the entire police force has given notice that they're quitting. We explore this issue with the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund's president, Jason Johnson. Jason, good to have you here with us. Small local police and sheriff departments around the country have been struggling with finances and recruiting for a while now. What's behind this? Well, since 2020, there, of course, has been a lot of anti-police sentiment uh, in the media and, and elsewhere that has really made it very difficult for all law enforcement agencies to recruit. But it, it hits small agencies particularly hard because small agencies tend to have small budgets and uh, they can't offer the same wages and compensation and other benefits that larger agencies can. So they're not as attractive to applicants. And so they're, they're really getting hit hard. 
And officers in small towns seem to face different problems from those in big cities, such as a lack of resources and high turnover. Is there anything else? Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's the main problem is it's a lot a lot of uh, police officers and small agencies will eventually want to join larger agencies. And when the pipeline for people entering law enforcement uh, has all but disappeared, I mean, in particular for law for smaller agencies, it's just more difficult for them to recruit. Officers want to have upward mobility. They want to have the opportunity to work in a, a variety of settings. And so for that reason, larger agencies tend to be more attractive for those who want to remain in law enforcement. And that leaves small agencies uh, more or less out in the cold. And how does that affect the communities that they serve? Yeah, you know, small agencies are, are small communities. And so they, although they may be part of a county that has a sheriff's office or another, you know, perhaps a, a state police agency can fill the gap. Uh, larger agencies don't tend to be as responsive to small towns as, as small town police departments are, and that's why there are small town police departments. There are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in, in the United States, and most of them are very small. They're five or 10 uh, police officers. They're not really the agencies that we always think of when we think of local policing. And so they, for, you know, they, they tend to be sort of forgotten. And uh, you know these these small communities rely on on these departments for for community policing, for responding to uh, you know, being first responders to incidents in which uh, they need police help, and so they're important. And the issue that I'm seeing is that crime continues to evolve, whether it's drugs or human trafficking, in rural areas and small towns, but the police departments in those areas may not have the resources to tackle it. Yeah, well, you know the evidence suggests that that uh, organized. Uh, criminals have realized that there's a dearth of law enforcement resources, uh, in particular in small town America. You know, outside of the big cities, they don't have the same law enforcement, um, you know, technology uh, resources, and so they take advantage of that and prey on smaller communities. and And we've seen that, and and we'll likely see it more of it in the future uh, if we don't address the staffing crisis, the more the broad staffing crisis in law enforcement. And how do you propose that to happen? What's the solution here? Well, number one, really, is just to restore the dignity of the law enforcement profession. Uh, salary and benefits are nice. Upward mobility and lateral mobility are all nice things, and they do assist with recruiting. But I think the big thing here uh, in small-town America as well as in big-city America is that law enforcement officers need to uh, have the pride of the profession restored. Uh, it's been uh, you know it's been torn down over the last couple of years. Morale is very low in police departments, and people who used to consider law enforcement a good career no longer do so. And we need to turn that around. We need to restore the dignity of the profession, and that's that's job one. All right, thank you so much, Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Really appreciate your thoughts. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the Wander Franco situation. That's right, Steph Franco, who was an all-star this year with the Tampa Bay Rays, was placed on the restricted list Monday by the team while Major League Baseball investigates some social media posts involving the 22-year-old. The posts reportedly suggest a relationship with a younger woman, though NTD has not been able to verify them. Now Wednesday night, a prosecutor in the Dominican Republic where Franco is from, told the Associated Press that an investigation is underway, while adding that it's a delicate topic because a minor is involved. He also added that he's had no contact with Major League Baseball regarding the case. Now, Franco is one of the most talented young players in the game, who is certainly in the conversation for not only a Gold Glove Award this year for his fielding at shortstop, but also a Silver Slugger Award. 
And in NFL news, Buffalo Bills coach Sean McDermott indicated that safety DeMar Hamlin is well on his way to resuming his NFL career after his collapse in the field last January. The 25-year-old played 22 snaps in their preseason win over Indianapolis last weekend, making three tackles in what was his first competitive action since having to be resuscitated on the field. Said McDermott, from my non-medical standpoint, I think he's checked all the boxes as far as that goes. There's just been enough of a sample where you're saying he's executed well and come out of that healthy. Now the Bills still have two more preseason games left to decide the roster. Hamlin, for his part, will likely be competing for a backup spot at safety. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, just four baseball games on. But that includes one with the streaking LA Dodgers, who've won now 10 straight games. They host the Milwaukee Brewers. And in the NFL, the Cleveland Browns will play at the Philadelphia Eagles as the NFL's preseason continues. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.